News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Yeah, a lot of rational perspectives coming to you tonight. We're going to be talking about the, a story that's rocking the United States and possibly many other parts of the world. Dr. Anthony Fauci, he's the guy who uh, is the main advisor to the president, the U.S. president, uh, the a combination of uh, CNN, the Washington Post, and BuzzFeed went to the courts to get 3,200 emails of Dr. Fauci's to be released into the public domain. And there's some explosive stuff in that. We've got a couple of stories up on BizNews at the moment. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was on it as well early this morning. This all happened last night. And we'll get the implications in just a moment from Nick Hudson, the uh, co-founder of Panda. Also coming up tonight, something, well, equally controversial, I guess you could call it. Uh, the last coal-fired power station uh, has got its marching orders here in South Africa. Uh, back in 2012, the South African government issued two bidders the opportunity. One group was from Japan uh, and uh, Korea, the other group from the Saudi Arabia, to put together coal-fired power plants for South Africa. Well, the the, the Asian uh, proposal went on ice last year, and then in the past week, the final nail was put into the coffin of the Saudi plan. So it pretty much ends any possibility of a coal-fired power station being built again in South Africa. We'll be talking to the environmentalists who've uh, put that together. And then also coming up tonight, the mighty RAND, uh, breaking 13.50 against the U.S. dollar. Who would have thought? Uh, we'll be talking to Andre Salia from Treasury One. Our guest co-host tonight, Pete Villion, has got uh, his views as well on all of these subjects. But let's bring in now Nick Hudson, who is uh, the co-founder of Panda. These emails that have been put into the public domain after the media or those three media companies demanded that that happened, but had to go to court to get them. Obviously, it's early days, Nick. There are 3,200 emails uh, that are available. Anybody can download them and have a look at them. And a lot of the stuff I've seen, is it sounds incredibly scientific. Have you had a chance to look at it yet? I haven't personally, and I probably won't, but I have a lot of people sending me uh, what they discover as they trawl through them. And it is quite astonishing. It uh, supports what we've been saying all along, that Fauci's a fraud. Just just unpack that for a minute. First of all, why would uh, media which were supportive of him, CNN, uh, Washington Post and BuzzFeed, we've really been following the official line on the whole COVID pandemic. Why would they ask for these emails to be disclosed? I'm not sure of the provenance of the reports um, as to who did the asking um, and why. Um, I mean, for me, we, we need to do a great deal of discovery because the, you know, what, what these emails reveal is that Fauci knew everything we've been saying for a year, that masks don't work, that there are available treatments that are successful 
in dealing with coronavirus, that asymptomatic transmission is not a thing, and so on. I mean, it just goes on and on. He knew all this stuff, and from late March, he turned on a ticky and started lying. And that time timing was the same in the UK. Valence and Whitty, who led the UK efforts, were speaking common sense, talking about how the guidelines, the existing guidelines, spoke about how we should handle a respiratory virus pandemic. And then in that same week, when Fauci began turning, they turned. And I, I always point out to people, you need to watch the videos around that little week when they turned. They go from being commanding, in control, knowing what they're talking about, to sweating like pedophiles in a playground. Why, Nick? What, what caused that? Pedophiles in a playground. Some... I, 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 love, I love that description. Yeah, I mean, I, we would love to know what caused that. They got the memo or the phone call, and it went around the world all at the same time. And they went from speaking the common sense of all those guidelines to talking up this absolute contrived nonsense of the lockdown. And what had happened in the few weeks prior to that is that the Chinese had relentlessly propagandized lockdown with fake videos. You, nobody will forget the falling man with his arms breaking his fall. The, the, the scenes of mayhem that presented to the world an Ebola. Um, and everybody knows that nowhere else in the world did scenes like that emerge. We didn't have people dropping dead in the streets. We didn't have people you know, suddenly keeling over in subway stations. All of that was contrived and faked propaganda. It was heavily promoted, including by human bots here in South Africa and all else, in, in all other countries around the world. Those Twitter bots were eventually taken down. The Facebook posts eventually taken down by those organizations. But by then, they'd done their damage, and uh, lockdowns were coming to a place near you. But all these uh, public health officials who you know, knew very well that these techniques didn't work suddenly changed their minds and started speaking nonsense from then on. And our scientists in South Africa are not exempt. And one thing I will say to you that they all have in common is they all have profound conflicts of interest. Nick Glenda Gray, who's the head of the Medical Research Council here in South Africa, there's an email that she sent to Faki, which is now in the public domain, uh, which reads, quote, wonderful article. It was to do with an article that was uh, very complimentary about him. Uh, on the 3rd of March 2020, uh, published in Politico, proud to be associated with you. What does that tell us about the way the officialdom in South Africa uh, was was approaching this pandemic, presumably um, with a, a following, really, what uh, the, the agenda that, that Fauci gave us? Yes, it's, it's very disturbing. I mean, in one line, it's it's a fawning and archly political single-line email um, tells you quite a revealing thing about yet another conflicted scientist. And what, what's extremely disturbing for me is it's all these conflicted scientists who have basically been lying to us for a year, who are in charge of determining policy, including uh, approving these experimental vaccines and now recommending that some extraordinary proportion of the population should receive them, even though there have been no solid animal trials or safety tests done on them for the population for for huge sections of the population 
you know, for example, the trials did not include recovered individuals. So we do not know anything about safety and efficacy in recovered individuals. We do not know anything about safety and efficacy in vulnerable people because the trials only involved underweight or, or healthy people under the age of 65. So there was, there was no testing of these vaccines in elderly and frail people and no testing in children, in pregnant women, in lactating women. And so I, I'm just deeply concerned that the same scientists who brought us this absolute nonsense of masks and lockdowns and no treatments and the novel virus and the deadly virus, which has all been exposed to have been complete lies, are also now suddenly the people who are declaring these vaccines safe and suggesting that 70 or 80 percent of the population should receive them. It stinks to high heaven. Pit Fillion, our guest co-host tonight, you've been following the story quite closely, Pit, as as we all have to. It has affected yeah. uh, the whole world, the whole all the economy, uh, or rather the global economy. What are you making of of what a uh, Nick has said now and b of uh, Fauci's uh, emails being leaked? Well, yeah. So <clears throat> uh, I have I haven't read the emails. I, I I've just been picking up uh, bits and pieces. But uh, you know, the, the strange thing for me. Uh, which Nick pointed out now, what happened in March last year. I mean, up until that point, there were very well-established guidelines set out to deal with respiratory pandemics, how one deals with them. And these were well-researched and uh, and well-documented. And then all of a sudden, March last year, everything changed. And the way the authorities told us to deal with this pandemic was now different. Uh, and so that's just a question mark. And when things don't make sense, you know, I think one should start start uh, sort of tugging at it and, and see where what which threads you can pull out. And I think Nick and his team at Panda have done a fantastic job of doing that. And I think there's a lot more to come out. Uh, you know, the truth will out eventually, and I think we'll see a lot more of this sort of stuff happening. Nick, what are those threads? What are the, are the threads that we should be pulling on? No, they're ones that uh, uh, Pitt says that you guys have found uh, in, in to, to focus on that period in March where everything changed. Yeah, look, I mean, we, we don't – okay, what's obvious here is the enormous role of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as the second largest funder uh, to the World Health Organization. And let me tell you, they are they have their claws into every single institution of public health in South Africa. All of these people you read about on our Mac, Sane, um, Shab, uh, they all have support one way or another from directly or indirectly from the Gates Foundation. And I don't believe that any of those scientists are in a position to speak out against the official line from the Gates Foundation and you know, the World Health Organization speaks almost with one voice when it comes to the Gates Foundation. So we have a position of extreme institutional capture. Who is delivering the memo or the telephone call that gets all these scientists to change their minds overnight? I don't know at this stage, and I, I don't, you know, how will we find out? It's it's very collusive, very, very um, uh, uniform behavior, very strange. And what's, what's probably more bizarre than all of this is, you know, in recent weeks, there's just been bombshell after bombshell. I mentioned on the last call about the spy bee revelations in the UK where these uh, behavioral scientists had stepped off their, stepped out of the room and said, listen, what's been going on here in terms of the, the, the project of driving fear in the UK population is unethical and we, we shouldn't have done these things. That wasn't reported in South Africa. 
I haven't seen mainstream media pick up the Fauci email leaks. I haven't seen mainstream media talk about the ivermectin um, results of these these trials that have turned out to be so wonderfully successful. I haven't seen them report about concerns around thrombotic events with the vaccinations or of Israel deciding that it was unsafe to vaccinate children uh, because there were so many instances of myocarditis. These are all enormous stories that are emerging, but our media is simply silent. And it leads me to suspect that they too are in a position of being compromised or conflicted in some way, being controlled by entities who do not want that news to come out. But as Pete said, the truth will out. Uh, is this the beginning of it? Is this the, uh, the dam breaking yes. with these emails? I, I believe so. If, uh, put it this way, if it isn't, then we're all in severe trouble because we, <laughs> then, no, then the truth will be suppressed, uh, you know, f- indefinitely. But uh, my feeling is that we have reached a tipping point somewhere in, in the last few weeks and that the, 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 the bogus COVID narrative that I wrote about in your, uh, your columns in October is finally unraveling. We will see profound impacts on our institutions of public health and government and I think on in media, the, the investigations into the wrongdoing here will continue for years. Pete, you're a rational guy. And what we're being accused of, just by merely talking with, with Nick, I, was, uh, I got a bit of a rev the other day from one of the wokey uh, uh, people on Twitter who said, you are platforming Nick Hudson. I never knew there was such a thing as platforming but i suppose if it's de-platforming when you don't well, I guess, yeah. yeah so yeah, if you can de-platform i suppose you can platform so yeah so <laughs> I, both of them yeah i've platformed people my whole life that's what we do <laughs> but, but 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 from your side when you when you look at all of this objectively as a rational thinker and i've said this before you're one of the most rational people i know what are you making of this? Because there will be a lot of uh, uh, supposedly rational people saying, oh, this is a lot of bunk. It's fake news. I had a guy telling me that today that the Fauci leaks are fake news. Um, how do you respond to those kind of things? Yeah, look, it's, it, is, it is difficult because um, people have died from COVID. So it, it, one can't make it out as if it is nothing. Uh, it is a real thing. It is dangerous to certain sectors or cohorts of the population. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to just, uh, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical specialist, but to wear a mask that lets air in and out as much, you know, what of what assistance can that be to anything at all? Uh, it just makes sense. So, you know, for me, I just question these seemingly arbitrary rules that are made uh, and I don't know where these things come from. And, uh, and so I'm very interested to to follow the trail to see where this ultimately, you know, where it's going to end up. I don't know. All I know is a lot of things just don't make any sense at all. So, uh, uh, yeah. Nick, help us to join the dots now. You say that there've been, there's been a big change in uh, the past few weeks. Now we have these emails which are saying certain things that, that, that uh, Dr. Fauci knew certain things, but spoke about them in a different way. Join the dots for us in, in real simple terms, what's going, been going on. Well, what's clear, for example, is that he knew that asymptomatic transmission was not a driver. And if you make that simple assumption, then the rationale for locking down, quarantining the healthy people, uh, the rationale for universal mask mandating disappears. 
So just just, so just unpack that slowly. Lie. Asymptomatic. Okay. In other words, people who are not showing any symptoms, but yeah, they yes. could be so, infected. So the idea is that they're infected with the virus, asymptomatic, and yet able to spread it. And, you know, we've, we've now sitting on top of good quality scientific research that shows that asymptomatic spread is, is rare. Um, it's, a, it's a minority of uh, instances of spread of infection. And it also is less likely when it happens to lead to disease. It just leads to uh, further asymptomatic infection uh, and more often than not. And that's an important story because, you know, we, we, we kid ourselves if we think that we know everything there is to know about viruses and viral pandemics. And, you know, what seems to be the case is that asymptomatic transmission among healthy people is, is uh, an important part of the generation of immune, um, of, of herd immunity, of, of uh, protective immunity against uh, the disease later in life. And indeed, it's a way of bringing down the, the spread amongst the vulnerable population. So we could have actually done exactly the wrong things. And if you look at the results, um, Peru recently decided that they were going to attribute all their massive excess mortality to coronavirus, and the numbers go truly staggering. Well, there's a strong attempt to do that underway with the SAMRC in South Africa. They somehow think that that is going to you know, reflect better upon them with their overblown models. But what it really reflects is an absolute disaster of policy. And so here you have two developing countries that both had incredibly long and harsh lockdowns, both producing these astonishing levels of aggregate mortality. And whether the mortality comes from COVID or from the the policy response doesn't matter. It just means that it's been a disaster. Countries that didn't panic, countries like Sweden, countries like Japan, had much lighter mortality. And it is possibly wrapped up in the story of, you know, quarantining healthy people being actually bad for the ultimate outcome. Just on that excess deaths, uh, the discussion we had uh, with uh, Scott Mullan, the chief executive of Brightwalk, a few weeks ago, uh, was he said that, and they're very close to the funeral parlors, he said that there were a, enormous increases in the number of funerals, which would uh, be coordinated with what uh, the Medical Research Council is saying of excess deaths. But he said it was sure. usually through people who couldn't get to, who weren't going to clinics and weren't going to hospitals to get their medication, i.e. HIV AIDS infected people, uh, others who had uh, diseases. And that was the feedback that he was getting on the ground. So to now ascribe all of those deaths to coronavirus sounds a little disingenuous. Well, let me give you a statistic. You see, and this is where these people are so damn dishonest. The life insurance claims were significantly higher for 2020. Uh, indicating that there has indeed been excess mortality. Pitt's right. There, there's, there's a disease going on, and there, there are other causes of death as well. But what's not being told is the story of how medical aid claims plunged. We were not treating people for the things that normally make people sick. And unless you believe that not treating people you know, has no consequence, then the Occam's razor here, the, 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 the line that joins two dots is that in, in, because of our overwrought and panicky policy response, people were denied normal medical treatment and they died. It's as simple as that. Nick Hudson, the co-founder of Panda, giving us a, a rational perspective on what's been going on with this pandemic.
At BrightRock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, it's a warm welcome to Andre Salir. Uh, he's with Treasury One. Usually we talk to you uh, in the Treasury One feature, but we, we think you're such a thought leader now, Andre, that uh, actually tonight we'd like to get your views on currencies, on the RAND, and why the mighty RAND has broken 1350. You've been pretty accurate in, in calling it uh, thus far. Are you seeing it continuing in this strong vein? There's, there's some factors that one needs to keep in mind. And one of the things that I've said for the last couple of weeks now is that if you look at the commodity space and you look at commodity prices on the increase, uh, then that was certainly one of the big drivers behind the RAND reaching these levels. And the question remains whether that's at the end or whether it's not at the end. Now, in my personal opinion, I do not think that it's at an end. If we look at today, then we have seen some pullback, but that's literally what I think it is. It's just a pullback. Uh, we've had numbers out this afternoon, uh, personal employment, uh, private sector employment by the U.S., uh, which was way above target, but now we have to go back and say last month that was reaching uh, levels that was missing the targets dismally. And this month it's quite logic that it will then actually shoot up. April, in any case, quite a funny month because there's a lot of holidays. Whether you're in South Africa or the US, there's a lot of uh, public holidays there. So I don't think that we're at the end of the strength of the land, uh, but I think we might get a temporary breather um, and we're awaiting the non-farm payroll figure to have some confirmation of the private sector uh, figures that came out. Now, that's a very good leading indicator and one can expect the non-farm payroll to come out at very good levels tomorrow. Uh, As I said, Mm. not not a a breather, not the stop. Uh, Pete Fillion, uh, you have uh, have a good focus or a good feel on the whole commodity sector. In fact, you were uh, mentioned in a very um, positive fashion last night by one of our uh, commentators. who said, "You know, Pitt was the was the was the platinum bull uh, that uh, long before everybody else was, and he's been proven right. But not everybody stayed with him, uh, which they should have done. <laughs> when you have a look, though, at at this commodity cycle uh, that Andre's been talking about, mm. which has impacted the rand, is your view that we've still got a way to go on that?" Uh, uh, so in short, yes, I do. Um, I, I think that uh, the commodity cycle is driven by supply of commodities. And in this cycle, uh, mining companies have not been investing in new mines and expanding production. Uh, uh, so I think that uh, despite the current high prices, which are way in excess of uh, the marginal cost of producing it, uh, of whichever commodity you you'd want to talk about, um, I, I still think this thing can go up because there is no new supply coming. And if there is con- a continued drive for increased expenditure on infrastructure, green infrastructure, um, uh, wind, solar energy, uh, electric vehicles, 
the US, uh, uh, you know, Biden is talking about spending six or seven billion trillion dollars on an infrastructure bill. You know, if you get this sort of spending into the economy, commodities will continue to be in short supply for quite a long time going forward. So I, I think that's that's one possible future, and I think one should probably uh, place uh, uh, fairly heavy waiting on that future. It's not it's not a certainty, but it is a possible outcome. So, Andre, if that's the case, if Pete's right, if the commodity cycle continues or the prices continues to rise, what implication does that have for the RAND? Well, it's got a positive implication for our trade balance. Uh, we've seen our trade figures uh, ballooning and our trade balance ballooning. And it simply, at the end of the day, becomes a question of supply and demand. And our demand uh, for currency is still very, very low because uh, we're not seeing massive spending on retail sales. We're not seeing it on car sales. We're not seeing it on anything coming from the consumer side. And as long as that prevails uh, and, the, and the supply comes, in from the commodity side, you will have an overhang of dollars coming into the market and that will work positively towards the exchange rate uh, going forward. It's an interesting point you make there because at this exchange rate, there are many manufacturers who are struggling, who say that they can't export and surely the importers at some point have got to kick into gear. Is there any particular reason why South Africans are not importing, why that that uh, demand for dollars, as you mentioned earlier, is so low? I think one of the reasons is that if you go back to the start of the pandemic, I think a lot of people were most probably caught with uh, fairly high stock levels, uh, which is quite a costly exercise if you carry high stock levels with no nobody buying because of a lockdown. Uh, and I think people are afraid of that, and I think they're keeping their stock levels low, and their inventory levels are at low levels. And I think that's going to re- remain like that for quite a while. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the people uh, will, when they go into the markets uh, and they start buying things, uh, especially the more expensive stuff, they'll find that uh, it's not that easily available. Uh, so if that continues and demand is slow, uh, with an overhang of dollars, the benefit will be there for the currency. How far can it go, Andre? Uh, we've, we've broken 1350 in this, uh, in this past few days. Are you seeing it below 13, perhaps? Is, it, is that a possibility? I mean, uh, a while ago, nobody could see it ever coming below 14. Well, I've just looked at the graphs, and let's not forget that in, the, in 2018, we've been as low as uh, into the 11s. Uh, so there is a chance that we could go closer to the 13, uh, but you also have to take into account uh, buying power parity and uh, whether the RAND's in an overvalued or a undervalued situation. Now, if it goes below 13, uh, then I think it will go into an overvalued situation, and, and then your exporters will, will really, really struggle, and competitiveness in international markets uh, will be a problem for them. And then you could see a decline in export levels, uh, which then slowly will work through to your trade figures again, um, and also comes closer to the end of the year, going back into the summer season, and if the third wave that is so is, is called is not as bad as everybody expects and we don't go into strong lockdowns, then I think demand can pick up. Uh, and if that demand picks up and with a bit of a slowdown in export levels, 
then we could see a slow turn in the rand. So towards the end of the year, I would forecast that we do trade back to slightly higher levels so, against the US dollar. But let's just say that Andre's right and that it uh, we do see the rand strengthening to around 12, that level, uh, or rather t- almost into the 12s, close to 13, perhaps a little lower. What implications has that got for investor equity investing? <coughs> Yeah, so, so I do think that one should, uh, instead of forecasting, just play the cards as a dealt. Um, uh, so if you take a step back, we think the RAND's fair value is around $13.50, dollars That's fair value. But in previous cycles, past historic cycles, the RAND has gone as expensive as 20% expensive to the dollar. I mean, that can happen. And right now, the dollar is globally a very weak currency. So the RAND could easily get 20% expensive to the dollar, which puts you down close to 11. You know, that you, you could, you it's, Possibly you could go there. But as an investor, if that happens, then I think you start aggressively moving more and more money offshore. Uh, so that's that's the strategy. So instead of trying to forecast where it's going to go, you can say this is getting expensive now. I'm going. To, it's time now to take more money offshore and make more offshore investments. And I've got to ask Nick Hudson in the you know, just to close up or uh, close off this feature. Uh, Andre did mention the third wave, Nick. Is that something that, uh, that that we again are exaggerating, or is it something very real that we need to watch out for? Well, it depends who you're speaking about. Certainly, when it comes to mainstream media and this guy Ian Sane, um, he's talking about a third wave that's 25% bigger than the second wave. We're not seeing that. We think it'll just be a normal kind of winter respiratory virus season with with nothing. Uh, to speak of uh, that's out of out of the norm beyond the normal um, it's early days so far it's not uh, looking as if anything is really developing and um, you know but I would just as a, a warning mention that as long as we continue to use these PCR tests which are not tests for COVID they should not be called COVID tests you can create anything especially when you run up run them up to these very high cycle thresholds of 35 to 42, as our labs have been doing in South Africa, you will you will detect cases and you will attribute deaths if you do that. And you know the World Health Organization has been clear this should not be done, but we persist with the practice. So really, you know, we could have a, a false third wave if um, that practice continues and any anything can happen. But our, our sense is that there's no sign at the moment of a significant third wave, and there are significant levels of immunity in our community already. Nick Hudson, the uh, co-founder of Panda, and you also heard from Andre Salir, who is with Treasury One. And this thought leadership feature was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, it's the top of the hour, and as always, at 6 o'clock, we pick up now with the main news headlines of the day. And it's a warm welcome to our Jackie Cameron. Here's the flash briefing. Land expropriation without compensation in South Africa is back in the international spotlight. The ANC plans to change the constitution to make it easier to seize land without paying. But this week, it hit a stumbling block in Parliament. It has failed to pin down sufficient support from other parties to push the changes through. While the radical economic freedom fighters, the third largest party, backs expropriation, it says proposals flighted by the ANC do not go far enough. 
The main opposition Democratic Alliance and other small parties oppose any constitutional changes which require the backing of two-thirds of lawmakers. South Africa's fiscal deficits are declining slightly faster than initial expectations, but slow progress on the rollout of coronavirus vaccines and structural reforms will continue to hamper progress. That's according to ratings firm S&P Global, which on Thursday affirmed South Africa's sovereign rating of three notches below investment grade. The UK government has requested extra doses of the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine developed for use against the South Africa variant. The Department of Health and Social Care in the UK says that extra doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, in addition to the 100 million already secured, are under discussion. These vaccines will be tailored to target the South Africa virus variant, now called Beta, and the UK has also committed to funding clinical trials for the new adapted vaccine. South Africa's National Prosecutions Authority says it has applied to the International Criminal Police Organization, also known as Interpol, to assist with the execution of warrants for two Gupta brothers and their wives. Eyewitness News reports that the NPA is also seeking the arrest of other suspects outside the country involved in the feasibility study of the Frida Dairy Farm in the Free State. Millions of rands were diverted from the farm project, which was intended to uplift poor people in the province. The Gupta brothers are linked to former President Jacob Zuma, who is standing trial in connection with corruption. And that was your business Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit businessradio.com. Well, it's time now to pick up on the markets with Justin Rowe Roberts. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, Justin, take us away. The JSE All Share Index was down by 1.8% to 68,700. More reds than greens today, with Sabanya Stillwater down 3.8% to 66 rand a share. Anglo-American was also down 3.5% to 610 rand a share. Naspers and Process both down 2.5% to 3,000 rand and 1,400 rand a share respectively. And Nedbank, Nedbank bucked the trend up 1.2% to 168 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand remains strong against all the major currencies to 13 rand 62 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 22 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 52 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,869 an ounce. Brent crude is flat at $71 a barrel. A Kruger Rand is down with the gold spot price at $26,500. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 525,000 Rand a Bitcoin. In the American markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is flat. The S&P 500 is two-tenths of a percent lower. And the NASDAQ is a percent down. Well, Pete Fulion, the uh, big story that came out late last night after we came off air was the acquisition by Process for 25 billion rands, $1.8 billion, of a a big company in the United States. Is this going to rehabilitate the reputation of Bob Van Dijk and uh, Basil Skordos in your mind? I know you've been quite critical about what they're doing with their money. Yeah, look, I, I think the market again voted today and, and voted against the transaction. Uh, you know, NASPAS and Process are both down 2.5%, which is a big move for, for, a big, for a big company like that. 
so I can only, I can, you know, I don't know this website that they bought to what it is, how much money it makes, you know, they paid $1.8 billion for it. I, I, there's no financial information. Uh, but the market is smart and the market is saying no thanks. Justin, you've had a look at this deal in, in some detail uh, and spoken with a few people, a few other analysts about it. Is that a universal feeling? Is the, that 2.5% decline that Mr. Market's done uh, today on those, those two stocks uh, showing, is it, is it universally thought that NASPAS have done the wrong thing? Alec, I think it just goes back to to Bob and Basil's track record, which isn't actually that great. I mean, you've got that Tencent investment, which is possibly one of the best investments in history by Chris Becker. But Bob and, and Basil haven't done a great job in the last few years of, of value extraction. There is a lot of value there. There's a massive discount. And the purchase is small relative to the market cap of both NASWIS and Process. So it'll be interesting. I, I have done a bit of research on Stack Overflow. It does seem a very um, popular website. And it'll be interesting to see if they can integrate it. And if there are some synergies there, maybe with Tencent, they can use some of Tencent's IP in stack overflow, maybe there is potential for this for this investment to be the next ten cent for them. I guess the big thing there, Pete, is that uh, the the numbers haven't been disclosed, so we don't know. Mm. And when you look at a South African context, it's an acquisition the size of buying all of Barlow World or buying all yeah. of Telco. Yeah. So it's a big, yeah. big chunk for any company to absorb. Uh, are, are we, though, is the market, though, perhaps uh, being a bit premature in its judgment? Well, I, I do think that if one scans the universe of technology investments at the moment, they are fairly highly priced on average. Generally, you know, uh, a lot of listed technology companies are trading at 50 times sales, 70 times sales, which is, you know, quite highly valued. So I would be surprised if they bought this company for a bargain price. Um, I, I think they probably paid, in relation to its earnings power, uh, quite a high price. Uh, but the key thing here is they're selling Tencent on the one hand and buying these sort of things on the other hand. And I think that's what the market doesn't like because Tencent is a great business. Uh, why would you, you know, uh, flower your, uh, water your weeds and, and cut your flowers? Uh, that's effectively what they're doing. Uh, that's what the market is saying. You know, that's what the market is saying. So can these... Uh, can the executive team continue indefinitely in in getting this thumbs down from the market? They're very well paid. As we know, uh, Bob Van Dijk's salary package is often uh, referred to as eye-watering in a South African context. Uh, yeah. if, if he has a – if he's unable to get the confidence of the investment community, will he retain the confidence of his board? Well, I think he would struggle if he can't if he can't engender confidence with the investor community. Then, um, then he'll struggle with that. But you must remember that uh, Nasdaq is um, you know the shares you buy are in shares. You've got no votes. Um, the votes are controlled by Mr. Becker and Associates, uh, so they can do what they want. Uh, you, you have no say in what's happening there. So I, I think one just needs to bear that in mind. So what? Bob van Dijk and Basil Skodos would be doing would first of all have to have the approval of Kurs Becker. Is that what you're telling mm-hmm. us? I, I guess so. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, look, I don't know the machinations of how how they do business there, um, but I'm sure that he would be supported by the board 
in his endeavors to, number one, close a discount, number two, make uh, value accretive acquisitions. Alec, I know NASPA's process is so important just because of their uh, weighting in the index and all South Africans are invested in the JSE all share index, etc. But something that did catch my eye on sense today, Value Capital Partners, uh, a concentrated investment firm, they call themselves activists. They've got a few large positions, small to mid-cap companies on the JSE. I, I see they've taken a 53 million rand position in Advertech, uh, the the tertiary education provider, which is which is very interesting. And I was having a look at their portfolio. I don't necessarily know where this fits in. Maybe Pitt will be able to add a bit of value here. Sun International, Ultron, Cashbill, PPC, Advertech seems like quite a strange fit in all of that. Well, I think the common denominator in the business they're buying stakes and are they're all they're all fairly good businesses um, and need some sort of either capital injection, debt restructuring, possibly, you know, each one that needs something different. Uh, and I think their track record that they've been building over the past five years or so is, is a good one. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. I picked that up as well. Um, Advitech happens to be one of the holdings in the Counterpoint Value Fund as well. Uh, I think it's a great business. I'm 100% sure it doesn't need any restructuring. Um, maybe they're just recognizing the potential of the business and making an investment into it just for that. Pete, just to pick up, and I think that's what we saw with Cash Build, um, not so long ago. They made they made quite a big investment into Cash Build, and that's done incredibly well yeah, over the last well, twelve months, as we've seen. Just yeah. to pick up, uh, Peter, on what we were talking about yesterday uh, with uh, Mark Barnes and the deal that is being uh, struck there with Paul Rutherford. Now he, it's it's interesting. Naspas is not top of your pops. Paul Rutherford used to be the M&A head for NASPAS uh, Middle East and Africa, and now he's going to be very closely involved with Purple Capital, which you know well through, uh, yeah, through Charles yes. Savage. Is that a good yeah. call? I think so. I think Charles built a, a, a good business. Um, it's growing rapidly. I think it's providing a service that clients want and need. Um, so I, I, think that's, I, I think it's a very good call. But would you, uh, do you know Paul Rutherford at all? Do you have much? I've never met, no, I've, I've never met him. So oh. I, I, sorry, I can't give you any uh, insights there. But he seems to be smart. Um, yeah, let's see. Pete Fulian giving us some insights on today's market report with Justin Rowe Roberts. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, we, uh, at the beginning of the show, started talking about a uh, landmark development in the court, which will see the end of coal-fired power stations in South Africa. We welcome now to Rob, uh, Robbie Mokablaka, uh, who's a senior campaign manager at Groundwork. Uh, Robbie, uh, I see you studied at uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal PPE, so you you uh, you're not a lawyer, so you didn't you didn't come here as an environmental lawyer. But there are many young people who want to go into this field and and make the world a better place. What attracted you to groundwork in the first place? Thank you, thank you, all listeners for uh, thank you, Alec, for in, in the invitation of being part of this conversation. Yes, I studied at uh, UKZN. Uh, that was then called the the investor of Natal until they changed. And um, well, what attracted me to uh, to work as an environmental activist was that 
I guess the back, my background somehow inspired me in that uh, I'm always inspired by fighting for justice, especially for the underprivileged. So um, I, I went, I did my articles working for Legal Aid South Africa. Um, so, and, and this is a place where when you work, you represent your client, you don't expect any payment. So your reward or your salary is in fact when you do justice, when you push for justice to be done for the clients. So that's what motivated me. I always get inspired by making sure that justice is realized, is done, and is served. And it's so interesting that the judgment that came out, or rather, well, it was undefended by the Saudi company, but you've been at it uh, against the, trying to stop the Kanyisa power station at uh, uh, in, in the coal fields of Mpumalanga near the old Witbank uh, for some time now. Uh, why? What I'm confused about is that the Saudi company, uh, ACWA, is the biggest investor in South Africa in a solar uh, power operation in the Northern Cape. Why were they wanting to build a coal-fired power station if on the one hand they, they, they're putting almost 12 billion rand into uh, clean energy, and yet on this side, they are quite happy to go ahead with dirty energy. That is exactly what's baffling us, Alec, that, uh, you know, and, and it's not only about the nature and the operations of the, of the aqua power. It's also about the place where this, this proposed plant is going to be uh, in, in the, 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 what we call the declared high-priority area you know, of, of, of the uh, the Highfield area. So it, it's a place which has been declared by the uh, the former minister of Martinez van Skalvik in 2007 uh, that, you know, the place which, I mean, he, which he declared that is a national air pollution hotspot. And that means that it's actually so polluted to an extent that there's no more, there shouldn't be any polluting industry allowed in the place. So the only thing that needs to be done is to put some plants in place uh, so that you can reduce the pollution that is already affecting the health of the people and also killing the people. So obviously the Aqua Power was aware of those statistics and the news and the rumors and also of the declaration. So to my surprise, to our surprise, is that here they are proposing a, a, a polluting activity, coal activity within the place, same, same place that is already uh, polluting and killing and affecting the people. So that's also our surprise. That's why we fought back against this. Who pays for these kind of court actions? Because if, if you don't have the environmental lobby going head to head, you can imagine that it, uh, such coal-fired, well, this coal-fired power station would have gone ahead if you guys had not taken them to court. But who funds it? Well, we, we are working as uh, this, this what we call a joint com- uh, uh, a campaign, call campaign. It's called Life After Call campaign. And it's actually made up of one is groundwork, which one is what? There are three uh, environmental organizations. One is groundwork. And the other one is, is Earth Life Africa that is based in Johannesburg. And also the CR Center for Environmental Rights, which is a group of lawyers, you know, assisting organizations that are working on environmental justice issues. So we are being represented by a Center for Environmental Rights, 
who are not charging us because they also believe, they also work uh, within uh, the ambits or the frames of Section 24 of the Constitution that everyone else has a right to environment that's not helpful. So other than that, it could, we could be paying an arm and a leg, but fortunately uh, we have the, our lawyers on our side who are believing on exactly what we believe in and who are willing to work for the, for the, to, for the justice of the people to be realized and to save the lives of the people on the ground. You put a number to it as well, which I found very interesting, that the South African public has been spared unnecessary expenditure of six and three quarter billion rand by this uh, coal-fired power station not going ahead. How do you quantify a number like that? Look, um, what, what, what we actually sort of, what was factored into those numbers was the fact that Remember that um, there's, there's, a, there's a health impacts, you know, the component of it in the impacts that will be coming from those uh, coal for power stations. So we have had a researcher uh, coming from London to, to actually conduct a research and, and quantify how much the, the coal for plants that are in the high field are affecting the health and how much of death is going to cause or, you know, uh, uh, in, within the same, in the, uh, uh, you know, high field area, you know, that we're talking about. So now we, we, we had to look into the medical bill. We had to look into um, the skilled people that may be affected within the area. And that, in fact, we, we actually put it in terms of economic terms that so much will be lost in terms of life. So much uh, health, you know, cost will be, will, will be factored in and also so much, uh, in terms of um, people that are working, you know, the absenteeism in the workplace, it will be it will affect the economy and the production in the companies. At the end of the day, the economy will be will be affected. So we put all those things together and come up with one uh, quantified number in on, on estimates, of course. It helps us to understand a lot better as well. But just to close off with, you've now stopped this new power plant from uh, a coal plant from polluting still further, but there are twelve coal-fired power stations in Mpumalanga who are pushing out a lot of air, not to say, well, and ex- that's excluding Sassel uh, in Secunda and in Sasselburg, who are also one of the big polluters. Are you going to take aim at them now, or the fact that they exist already makes them a fait accompli? Well, Alec, what, what, what we are sort of working on one of, of our objectives as, as the uh, Life After Coal campaign is that um, we need to make sure that we push for the existing coal fire plant to be decommissioned within the time frame that they eventually set for. So of now on those existing power plant, what we're working on now, we're working into pushing them to meet and actually sort of decommission at the time that it's been set for them to decommission uh, because by that time they will be uh, depilitated and of course they will be uh, not in a good state of, of function and at the end of the day they will be you know they won't be able to they all be in a position to uh, uh, filter the pollution that will be coming from the the operation itself so hence the decommission time has been put down that it has to be decommissioned for those reasons so we will be pushing and we'll be working together to make sure that all the times and timetables that have been put down or schedules that have been put down for decommission are met and the decommission is done. 
So, but in the meantime, what we are doing, we are, um, while these plants are, are operate, operating, we make sure that we challenge any any uh, uh, pollution that is coming from the plant in terms of uh, um, the levels which have been set not to be exceeded. So any accident, we're taking it on, we make sure that it does not exceed the limit that has been set in terms of, you know, uh, the amount of pollution that is supposed to be uh, uh, produced or exhumed from those coal plants. Robbie Mokalaka is the senior campaigner uh, at Groundwork, and, well, they've had a groundbreaking decision, the final. Probably never again will we see a coal-fired power station uh, being built in South Africa after the second, this is the second coal-fired power station that Groundwork and its uh, counterparts have managed to block. It'd be interesting to get Pitfulion's view on what this means for coal generally. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Pit, it's lovely getting the view and perspectives of activists, mm. people who, who kind of put their lives uh, on hold uh, or in many times invest their whole lives in, in helping others. Uh, and this is, a, this is a good story for the communities, but I'm sure uh, it must have implications for the production of power in South Africa. Yes, uh, like it's always good to talk to, to people who are actually adding value to society in terms of uh, cleaning up uh, the pollution and the effects of coal and, and, not, and stopping new coal-fired power plants from being built. So that's well done. That, the, the one thing I would say is that we have a lot of existing coal-fired plants that are still going to be around for a long time. Uh, and I think one has to bear in mind there is a cost to uh, dirty energy uh, in terms of health and lives and so on. But there's also a benefit. Dirty energy is cheap. It's a cheap source of energy. And many developed countries that are now um, anti-coal and dirty energy had long growth spurts fired by cheap or fueled by cheap energy, cheap source of energy amongst others, coal-fired power plants. So, So I think... It's a good thing that we are looking after the health of people, but we also need to understand there are trade-offs in everything one does in life. And the trade-off here is clean energy is an expensive for- source and, and an inconsistent source of energy at this point in time. So our rate of growth could be held back if we uh, if we just close down all the coal-fired power stations today. Uh, uh, you know, I think that, that would be a problem. But it's also quite an important story for the investment community because ESG or environment, social and governance issues are becoming increasingly important now um, in the lives of, of uh, professional investors and as a consequence in the lives of companies. Because if you don't get your yeah. ESG right, uh, you don't attract the investment which is going to give you uh, the capital that you need to grow. Yeah, um, I, I also have to say that I'm sometimes a bit wary of these these uh, um, acronyms uh, or investing via acronym because it, it can lead to strange behavior. Like, for instance, at the moment in, in many of these ESG index indices, Apple and Google are, are right up there as the biggest um, uh, companies in those indices. But if you break it down, you know, if you look at a, at a, a you know, cell phone, what goes into this uh, that has to come out the ground. Uh, and it, uh, to produce this, you are polluting. Uh, so there's a lot of inconsistency. And then a company like BP, 
who um, who produces oil, uh, mines oil, and produces uh, gas and so energy from oil, is excluded. But BP is taking the cash flow from its dirty energy and investing it into clean energy. And I would say that's probably a better way of going about it than just saying, well, Apple doesn't use dirty energy, therefore they are, you know, they can go into the index and BP can't because they explore and mine oil. So, so there's lots of inconsistency there as well. So one has to be very careful and think through it properly. Lots of complexities. Well, uh, yeah. I, I, one of the things that has supposedly changed Elon Musk's mind about Bitcoin is the data that was produced to show that Bitcoin mining uh, uses as much energy as Sweden in a year. <clears throat> so it, it is a, a, a pretty dirty uh, uh, development in its own if you then, uh, but you would never associate that with, with Bitcoin. Pete, just on a general basis, we, we had recently the listing of the coal assets of Anglo-America. And <clears throat> as happened with when Sabanya was listed out of Goldfields Limited, the share price uh, came under a lot of pressure because the uh, the, the owners uh, of those shares were not all natural holders. But what's yeah. the future for a company like that, given that uh, Robbie and his colleagues have, have stopped co- new coal-fired power stations? Yeah. What happens to a coal company? Uh, and, and this is a this is a significant business. Uh, yeah. how, where does it go in future? So, as I said earlier, um, in South Africa, most of our energy is still produced by coal-fired energy stations. So, the coal will still be in demand for decades to come, as long as these uh, as these plants are in operation. And you know, it, it's going to cost a lot of money to replace them. You can't do that in the short term. So, you know. The coal will be in demand, but that demand will be declining gradually, and then all of a sudden it'll go away. But that, you know, that we're talking about decades here. It's not going to happen next year or the year after that. So you've got to actually get a good holistic picture, uh, a little bit yeah. like the number that we were given about the real cost of a coal-fired power station when you knock on effect of, of medical uh, expenses, etc. Yeah. You've yes, got to look at it holistically right, when you're even thinking of investing in Anglo's coal assets. Look, I, you know, I, I do believe that uh, investing in spin-offs generally um, is quite an interesting uh, addition to a portfolio in terms of the uh, the things that drive returns to spun-off companies are different that uh, different from the factors that drive the market generally. So you get some diversification benefits there. Because remember what happens, and, and, and I think this coal company is a classic example of it, Anglo spins it out. And the Anglo shareholders who get this coal company don't want it because it's dirty and they just sell it. They don't they have no regard of the earnings or the earnings power or the value of the business. They just sell it. And that creates opportunity. We saw that with multi-choice. When Nasdaq spun out multi-choice uh, two years ago, it dropped from, I don't know, 100 rand to 60 rand or 70 rand in a short space of time and is now back at 130, 140 rand. Uh, so spinoffs are, you know, I, I, I use them in constructing portfolios because they are a source of uncorrelated return uh, because of the dynamics behind the spin-off. And to close off of the show tonight, we've got a few questions for you, Pitt, very quickly uh, from our uh, YouTube audience, uh, live chat there. 
Mr. Speedy wants to know what would you attribute the recent rally in the rand to between dollar strength uh, between the dollar weakness and strength of gold, which has had more influence? Love to hear your thoughts. It's hard to say which has had more influence. I think these things are all connected, interrelated. Uh, I think there is, uh, you know, if you look at our uh, uh, external accounts, we're running massive surpluses for almost the first time ever. Uh, and that is supporting the RAND. Uh, I think the dollar globally has been weak against most currencies. So that's also helping the RAND. And I, I also think that um, investors globally are starting to see some value in the South African market. So you've seen some foreign companies coming in and buying up local assets. So it's a combination of all those things. The, the fundamental fact is at 16, 17, 18 RAND to the dollar, the RAND was massively undervalued. And normal economic forces, and, and you can never forecast these things, very hard to forecast them, but if something becomes very undervalued, economic forces brings it back to fair value and sometimes even to expensive levels, and then the whole cycle starts again. And we're just going through a normal cycle, such as we've seen for the past, you know, I don't know, 40 years. It happens, it gets strong, it gets weak, it gets strong, it gets weak. Uh, Adam Gambule says uh, VCP already owns 5% of Advertech and have a representative on the Advertech board already. So that uh, is just closing the loop on something we were talking yeah. about with Justin. And the final question here from Kruda Bex, uh, which currency will be strong in three months? You're going to have a go at that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get a coin. Uh, yeah, mm. I, it's, it, you know, three months, I... Uh, I I, I can't answer that. It's, it's impossible. You know, I, I think if a currency gets too strong, you can take advantage of it by then diversifying out of that currency. And if it's too weak, you can diversify into that currency. But trying to forecast where anything is going to go in the next three months, uh, that's, uh, there are the smart, other smart people out there that can do that. I, I unfortunately can't. Thank you to Pit Fulion. Uh, thank you to all of our guests this evening, Nick Hudson, uh, uh, Andre Salier, uh, Robbie Mokaglaka and uh, for, to, of course, uh, Justin Rowe Roberts, who brings us up to date on the markets. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.